All right, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 15. All right, Acts chapter 15. Today, we reach the heart of the book of Acts. All right, uh, this is... The, Paul has gone on his first missionary journey at this point. If you've been tracking with us, we've been going through the book of Acts uh, this summer, really actually since Easter. Um, and he's going to have two more missionary journeys that we read about. But structurally, we are at the center of the book. All right? Uh, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. <clears throat> we are in chapter 15. Now, something that is often done in first century writings, and the Bible is no exception, is that they, they purposely, physically lay the book out in different ways. All right, and sometimes this is the entire book or letter. Sometimes this is just uh, certain parts of it, uh, all the way down to certain poems, even down to, at times, like laying out specific syllables. And obviously, when we translate that into English, lots of times we will miss some of those syllable things. Like, there are psalms if you knew this or not, where every line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, obviously that doesn't work when we translate it into English. So we completely miss those things. But there are things that are laid out physically in the book. Uh, one of the things, like at the beginning of Acts, we actually saw this, Acts chapters 2 through 5. It does this, where it lays it out, all right, and you kind of have these events that happen that build up to something in the middle, and then they actually kind of mirror themselves and come back again the other way. All right, so I'll have this on the screen behind me here. Acts chapters 2 through 5. Like, essentially what happens is Jesus, at, at, at the end of Acts 2, his disciples are gathering in houses and temples. All right, like this is kind of what's going on. Says that. Then you have a little story where Peter heals and preaches in the temple uh, and then is arrested. All right, and then you have kind of the center of this little motif where it talks about all of the, the believers selling everything they have and giving it to the poor, and kind of like uh, living as a community. And that's the center of it. And then it actually, oddly enough, begins to work its way back out, and it mirrors it. And again, you have them going and preaching, and getting arrested, and then it's saying, like, and everybody gathered together in houses and in temples. And I think we often miss these types of things, uh, but what is being done here is Luke is actually showing, like, the middle of this is, is kind of the spot that you're really supposed to pay attention to. And what we have there is it looks like, okay, great, they're selling their stuff and they're giving it to the poor, that, that sounds awesome. Well, what that is, is that was actually things that the temple was supposed to be doing, but they were failing to do. And so what we have here is coming out of the day of Pentecost and, and the early church forming, is you have Luke showing, look at the early church is taking the place of the temple. It's doing all the things that they were supposed to do, and it builds in this way to kind of show you that. All right, now that, that's just a small little thing to basically say, like, today we are hitting the center of the book of Acts. Like, we're, we're in Acts chapter 15. But realize it is more than just the physical center of the book. Where we are at today is intentionally laid out. This is the theme of Acts. This is like the most important part. This is the part that Luke has been building this crescendo to, to show you like this is what matters. This is what matters. And it's funny because it's a little chunk that I think often when we read, we would never think that. We might even just kind of skip over. It's called the Council of Jerusalem. All right, and it's just basically some of the leaders getting together and talking. Sounds pretty boring. 
And I think we usually just kind of gloss over that quickly and move on. Let's get back to the adventures of Paul and where he's going to go and getting bit by a snake and shipwrecked and whatever else is going to happen. But this is the center. This, this is what matters. And so the book of Acts shows us how the gospel moves from just the Jewish people to the whole world. All right, and this was promised way back with Abraham and is finally moving there. The problem is that it was promised so long ago that people really overlooked and forgot that this was God's plan. They got so good at just following the rules that they missed the heart. And here we see the tension that tradition brings when tradition and the method has become more important than the mission. Right? Like the way we've always done it is more important than what we actually were supposed to be doing. So today in a way, is the core of the New Testament, all right? So I'm excited. Let's jump in. If you're able, if you're willing, would you stand with me? I'm going to read through this uh, portion. It's about 20 verses here, all right? So if you get tired in the middle of it and need to sit down, you go for that, all right? But uh, I want to read through this with us this morning, reading in the New Living Translation. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of, of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about the question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. While they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of Pharisees stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Paul stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. And so, my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath 
for many generations. God, we pray this morning that, uh, that this passage, Lord, would just speak to us in a new way. God, that, uh, that maybe our eyes would be open to something that we haven't seen before. God, that you would just begin to uh, move in our life, Lord, as we spend some time just growing together and digging in and wanting to learn more about you and become more like you. We ask that in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. <clears throat> there is a show on Netflix uh, that I kept getting told I should watch. All right, you ever been there? But I was never in the mood. And I'm like, yes, I know. Okay, yes. I, no, I have not started watching it yet. No, and my sister kept, hey, have you watched it yet? No, I have not watched it yet. All right, and she kind of kept on me. Uh, and finally, a month or so ago, I decided to watch this. All right, and it's called The English Game. The English Game. And it's about soccer, or I guess football, all right, uh, which I think we can all agree. All right, whether you like soccer or American football, the name football makes way more sense for what we call soccer. Okay, can we just agree on that? Like the entire sport is, is actually about a ball in your foot. Whereas in what we call football, <laughs> never mind. Okay, as, as, as a soccer player, I just, I struggle with that. All right, well, it, it's, a back, it, it's about back when, when football was first becoming organized and having some structure, okay? Uh, and at the beginning, uh, it, it was basically a few teams around England. And for the most part, the main teams were all made up of kind of wealthy, gentlemen, elite types, all right? Uh, and they went to nice colleges. They came from wealth. They had wealth. And then a few times, uh, <clears throat> there, there was these teams that were started up kind of in the working class, like in factories, mill workers, where, where a factory would start a team that if you worked at that factory, you worked at that mill, you could then play on that team. Okay, and they started playing against uh, these other ones. But they never did well. Okay, none of the mill teams ever won the tournament or anything like that. Uh, no one was paid to play. That was actually a rule early on, set by these elite type, like you should not be paid. Okay, this is a gentleman's thing, kind of. Uh, you weren't supposed to be compensated. Now, that's not a big deal for these elites that have plenty of money. They could spend a good amount of time practicing and preparing for games, uh, didn't really have to worry about going into work. They could eat a good meal beforehand, all those types of things. The mill workers, they were working like 14-hour days, barely eating food, and then having to get on a train and like go somewhere, spend all, their, all the little extra money they saved to get on a train and go and play this game uh, against these rich people. All right? it, just, it wasn't a very fair setup. In this, uh, the game, oddly enough, was sort of played like American football, like early on, like these elites, they had this way of playing it where they just basically get the ball, they'd all get in a big group, like a flying V, like it's hockey, and, and they just head straight down the middle and just try and like knock everybody out of the way and try and score the ball. All right, well, in, in this show, there's a mill team that secretly hires a few guys to move and work at their mill. And they're, they're paying them to work at the mill, but they're paying them extra because they want them to come from Scotland and come over and play for their team. All right? And, and these guys have sort of a new way of playing. And they, they're, they're from Scotland, and they, they pass the ball, and they move it around. And it actually looks a lot more like what modern soccer or football today would look like. All right, so the show surrounds this idea 
of football moving from this exclusive, elite, non-paid, running the ball up the middle to this inclusive, uh, working class, being able to kind of pay players so they could take a day off for the game uh, or practice and actually be able to eat a good meal and, and change the style of play. All right, and as you can guess, like, just that alone there, Netflix then makes, you know, six drama-filled episodes that have a million other things involved in it, because that's how they make shows. All right, but uh, it's kind of this interesting thing. But when I read our passage, when I read our passage for today, like this, it kind of has a little bit of the same idea in it. Like, I actually started to think about this show. Like, you have a group that has been quite exclusive, and they've been very specific about the way that things are done and rules that should be followed in order to be part of this group. And, and it's clashing with another group who is new on the scene, who wants to be part of what is happening, but could really never live up to the, their way of doing it. And, and so I just kind of, uh, I started making that connection. And, and so it's super similar to the situation that you have unfolding here. And I want to go back to our passage, and I want to pick out uh, just a couple spots that I think are good for us to understand and kind of drill down on. Uh, and then talk about what does this mean for us today. All right, so Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're in Antioch. And Antioch, remember, uh, this is the first multinational Christian community. We had talked about that. This city is the first place that it really went beyond just the Jewish people. And it's the first place where you have these multiple groups together. Also the first place where people are called Christians. Antioch is important. Well, all of a sudden, uh, Christians from the church in Jerusalem, the original place where this started... So Christians who have a Jewish background, they show up and they start to disagree with Paul and Barnabas. And they start to say, you're not doing this right. And they're saying, you can follow Jesus, you can be a Christian, all right, we're okay with that, but you need to become like us in order to do it. You need to look like us, behave like us, before you can belong. So they decide to send the leaders back to Jerusalem and figure this mess out kind of once and for all. Uh, but I think it's important, a few things for us to see here. In verse 3, first, I, I love this. It says, They stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. I know I think it'd be easy to think that the Jewish believers weren't happy about the change. That new people were coming in. But it actually doesn't seem that way. They seem to be happy about it. They just genuinely believe that they must do these things to be part of the family of God. Like, you must follow these rules. It's, it's, for them, it's not just like a preference thing. This is like doctrinal for them. Like, they, they really believe this is important. They want them to be part of the family of God, but they feel like they're doing it wrong. Like, you're not actually part of the family of God yet. Okay, so imagine you have a friend that, like, wants to start living for Jesus, and you're all happy. You've maybe been praying for them. You're like, yeah, this is great. I'm excited about this. But then this friend is like, okay, I'm doing it. But I'm really not going to change the way I live. I'm not going to change my life. I really don't want to be part of that community of weirdos that you're part of every Sunday. And, and I don't really want to do all these extra things. I'm just, I'm just going to say that I'm part of it. Like at that point, you would probably go to them and be like, uh, no, like you can't, you can't just say it. Like it, there's more to this. You're missing it. Like that, I think that's a little bit of the heart that is happening here. They, they genuinely believe that they're missing it. That doctrinally, they are not following through on everything that they need to. 
Okay, so they all take off and they're like, okay, let's figure this out. Let's head to Jerusalem to figure it out. Uh, They get there, everyone welcomes them, they report what is going on. And then verse 5 says this, But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. All right, so, so there are Christians who are Pharisees. I think often we spend our time in the Gospels and Jesus' ministry and he's constantly fighting with the Pharisees. It's easy for us to, to put them into this spot where the Pharisees are the bad guys. Anyone ever been there? I mean, it's easy. Like every time you're reading through the Gospels, the Pharisees come on the scene and you're like, oh man, all right, here we go. You know, Pharisees are the bad guys. They're the ones always getting it wrong. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. The Pharisees care deeply about the law of Moses. That's why Jesus had issues with them, because they were so focused on the law, he kept saying, you're missing the heart. You're focused on the law, you're missing the heart. So we have the Pharisees here. They are Christians. Like There are some that have become Christians. They're still Pharisees. They still care about the law, but maybe too much. So these Christians, they're, 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 just, they're still focused on the old covenant. All right? They always resist the urge. All right, so I, I want to say this for us. Like The reason why I brought that up, resist the urge to categorize people in, in like bad guys and good guys. Okay, that is, that is a like little children's thing when we watch Disney movies. They like make it very easy to tell bad guys from good guys. And actually, I think it was like Frozen was one of the first Disney movies where they actually had someone who pretended to be good who actually was bad. Okay, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. I just gave up part of the story. But, like, most of the time, like, we're just very, like, good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy, okay? And, and I think we naturally slip into that. Don't do that in these. Okay, so we read this. There's, there's Pharisees that are believers, okay? So, at this point, they all begin to discuss this, and Peter stands up uh, and shares. And remember, Peter had to go through this himself. A few weeks ago, we saw this. Uh, he had to learn this with Cornelius. And God had already doubled down on him, saying the Gentiles are fine. The Gentiles are part of my community. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Okay, so then Peter says this in verse 10. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now a yoke, if you don't know this, that's that's the thing that would go on the oxen that they'd kind of pull things with. And he's basically saying, you're putting this burden on their shoulders that, they, that not only they can't deal with, but remember, you and I couldn't do it. That's why Jesus came. We had the old covenant. We had the laws. We were unable to actually live under those laws. We were never able to justify ourselves fully. Why are you now trying to take that thing that really didn't work for us and force them to do it? The Christians that were Pharisees, they were all good seeing Jesus as the Messiah, but they saw him as a... Con- like, uh, as a continuation of the Old Covenant, not like a completion of it. So then Paul and Barnabas get up. They share all the wonderful things God is doing with the Gentiles again. Then James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, gets up. And this is important because James is actually the one that sent these believers to Antioch. We aren't told that in Acts, but we see that In the book of Galatians, Paul says those people that were sent by James 
All right, now we don't know if he, if he sent them and said, go tell them that they need to be circumcised. We don't know that. But he sent them. So now, basically, the guy that's leading this whole thing in that original church that sent those people to go do that, he gets up. So you better believe everybody is going to listen at this point. So this is James. This is the brother of Jesus. Gets up and says, what is happening here was prophesied back in the book of Amos. And he quotes the book of Amos. Uh, and this is obviously God fulfilling this and doing this. And then he says this line, and this is important. This is where we're going to come back. This is where we're camping out. All right, verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for those that are turning to God. They want to follow Jesus. Our job is to help them follow Jesus is to get more people following Jesus. Why, why would we make it harder than what it needs to be? He conti so it continues, it says, Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So he lists off these four things that they should avoid. He says, you don't need to be circumcised, but you should avoid these four things. Now remember, Jews, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Jews at this time, they were not allowed to eat dinner with anybody else. Just other Jewish people. This is what got Peter into trouble when he started sitting down and eating with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They were not allowed. Like they, they had food laws that said you, you cannot sit and eat with other people. Obviously, like we said, food was a big deal. Gathering at a dinner table was a big deal. It was this intimate, like, more than just friends and family. Like, there was not fast food where you go out and you're sitting in a room with tons of other people sitting down and eating. Like, sitting down and eating was an important thing. All right? So he kind of lays these out, and three of them have to do with food. All right? James knew the importance of eating together and how much that builds community. He wanted that to happen. He knew it was needed, so he focuses on areas that would have been divisive kind of during this eating time. And he says, okay, basically, will you do us a favor? When he says you should avoid these, this is not him saying these laws are still standing necessarily. He's saying, would you do us a favor? Because understand this, this has been taught to us for generations. Every single week, every single synagogue, this has been taught to us. It is ingrained in us. Please be patient with us. So if you could do this for us, it would help this go a lot smoother as we bring these communities together. Can you please not do these things? Because everyone's going to be super offended by this. All right, and, and so this is kind of what's happening here. This is why he's saying this. Now, some of these food things, they also had to do with, uh, for some of these Gentiles, their past. They had to do with pagan worship in a temple. There's a lot of things surrounding food that they would, they would eat a meal and parts of that would be worship to their pagan god. So he's like, okay, we want to separate you from your past and we don't want to upset these two communities as we bring them together. And then they, he, he also says sexual immorality. Okay, again, that was part of the pagan temple worship. Uh, there were so many things that went on when it came to worshiping their pagan gods. So he's saying these four things. Can you please just avoid these four things? All right? Like, think about this. When two people get married, <clears throat> the first few months are filled 
with usually little fights that blindside you and, and then followed up little compromises. Okay, because you're taking two lives that have been lived separate and you're smashing them together and more than likely the way that you lived and the way that they lived were not the same. The way that you organized the refrigerator was not the same. Okay, whether you put the toothpaste on first or the water on first was not the same. Whether the toilet paper went this way or that way, not the same. Okay, the big thing for Emily and I, very first big fight we had, this was like all-out throw-down massive big fight for us. All right, whether the dish drying rack went into the sink or on the counter. If you had two sinks, do you waste one of those sinks? I'm showing my hand. <laughs> do you put it in one of those sinks or do you put it on the counter? And I kid you not, we had a massive fight about this. It was big. It was like several days. Emily right now is arguing her point to the people sitting near her. I have the microphone. Everyone's going to hear my point. All right? Like, it's just, that's what happens when you bring lives together. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult. You've lived your life one way for how many years, and all of a sudden, some other person is saying, well, that's not how I live my life. Well, you're crazy. You're a sociopath. You might go murder somebody if you keep the, the, the drying rack in the sink. What's next? Like, okay, so we, we can all appreciate bringing lives together is difficult. <laughs> I did not tell her that. <laughs> I was young and dumb, but I was at least smart enough to not say that. Bringing lives together is hard. And what James is doing here is trying to say, hey, I understand. This is difficult. This isn't going to be the end of the difficulty. Can you please help a little bit here by avoiding these things? We've talked about how here at our church, we need to begin to represent our community better. Our community is only about 50% white at most. But our church is probably 90% white. Our church should look more like our community if we are actually reaching our community. We need to change some things to make that happen, to make it easier. All right, there will be friction. That's not a bad thing. It's bringing communities together. That's a good thing. But I love what James says here in verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. His focus wasn't on maintaining the old ways that they were comfortable with. It was on making it as easy as possible for people to follow Jesus. Even if those people were completely different from them, we want to make it easy for them to follow Jesus. Well, I shouldn't say make it easy. We don't want to make it more hard because the reality is it isn't easy. It wasn't easy for them. It's not easy for us. All right, so what he's saying here isn't watering things down because following Jesus is giving up your entire life and submitting to his lordship in every single way. And that is simple, but not easy. It's incredibly difficult. So why would we add anything on top of that? That's what he's saying. Why would we make this harder? It's already difficult. Like there's already pieces that, that people are going to have to walk away from their families to become Christian. Like at this time, uh, when you got baptized into the church, it was because that was your new family. 
we kind of use that term, and like we really want to use that term as close as we can, but it's a little bit of a gimmicky term nowadays. It's not for them. It's not right now in, in Afghanistan, in, in some of these areas where like, you want to be a Christian? You are walking away from your family. Your family is disowning you and potentially even trying to kill you to save themselves shame. It's not easy. And he says, okay, we can ask them to give a little to try to help us out to make this community come together smoothly. But we are not going to put our wants and our desires and our comfort levels ahead of them following Jesus. This was true for James and the leaders of the early church, and it needs to be true for us today. All right, understand this point right here. Mission is greater than tradition. Mission is greater than tradition. At the beginning of August here, uh, in two weeks, it'll be three years that I've had the honor of pastoring and leading this church. And, and we've just loved every, every moment of it. In the very first sermon series that I preached uh, when, when we came here, uh, I had called the main thing. And this is what I had said. This is what my promise was, is that we were going to keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is the main thing, and that's what we are going to focus on. And when changes are made and decisions are made, they will be made with the gospel in mind. And we will make decisions with the focus of God's kingdom growing and spreading and people finding Jesus. So there might be decisions that are made that people don't like. And you are always welcome to come and talk to me about that. That's, that's completely fine. I actually, I love that. I would rather someone comes and talks and says, oh, why is this happening? What is going on here? Then they just kind of stew and they begin to talk to others about it. All right? And either, if someone comes and talks to me, either I will be able to say, hey, here is why we made that decision. And I'll be able to point back to, we believe that the kingdom of God will grow better because of this decision. Or if I can't bring it back to that, then I probably need to actually go back to the drawing board and ask myself, why did we make this decision? That, that, that was what we said at the beginning of this. Our mission is to know him and to make him known. And we will not compromise for any tradition that is out there. We will not compromise that. Traditions are just methods. They are just different ways of doing things. All right? Sunday school is a method. Life groups is a method. Sunday evening service is a method. Sunday morning service, that, that, that's a method. It's a tradition. Music being done a certain way. <clears throat> preaching being done a certain way. Like, if you think about it, I was listening to a guy talk the other day, and he, he says, the church is about the only place that has hung on to the, the, di the, or sorry, the monologue. One person getting up and talking and everybody listening. Even if you go into schools, you go into colleges nowadays, it's really not how most of it's done. <clears throat> People have begun to change that. So I have a friend down in the cities, and he has coffee shops all around Minneapolis, and on the weekend, on Sunday morning, they all turn into churches. And it's called Corner Coffee or Corner Church. And when he gets up and preaches, <clears throat> he'll preach for about five minutes at a time. And then a question goes up on the screen. And he says, okay, turn to the people at your little coffee table and talk to them about this question. And then he brings everybody back in and then keeps going. <clears throat> He's just found ways to, to change that. Because the way that we preach, that's a method. 
It's a tradition. It's nothing more than that. <clears throat> we have no biblical mandate of how the teaching has to look. We have no biblical mandate of how really a whole lot of this has to look. All of these things, they help accomplish the mission, but they themselves are not the mission. We could sit and have even a heated conversation of whether or not, you know, when COVID started happening and everything started going online, there's a lot of conversations that followed that. Do we need to come back in person? Does that need to happen? Okay, well, if we're honest, there's parts of what we do that are tradition, that are method. We could probably sit down and maybe find other ways to accomplish some of those things. Obviously, we're still gathering together on Sunday morning, so you can see kind of where I've landed in this, but I'm not stuck on that. I think that there's, this is a method. It's a method. Over the years, well-meaning Christians have fought and defended certain traditions, and many times with good hearts, like the Jewish believers from, from the group of Pharisees. Like, I, I think they truly thought that that was vitally important, that tradition. But they were defending traditions, not the mission. We can't get those mixed up. The other side of that is people just wanting to change for the sake of change. Okay, and what we don't see here is that innovation is more important than the mission either. We don't change just because it's cool to change and we want to try new things and that's going to attract new people. No, like innovation can equally, innovation and tradition both can have downfalls. Our focus always has to be mission. What is the mission? What is the best way to accomplish that mission? So this is important for churches, for church leaders, for people in the church to understand. Uh, but I don't think that this is what makes it hard for typical people nowadays to make a decision to live for Jesus. I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't think that whether a church has Sunday school or not uh, is really making a big deal to someone who is far from God. You want to know who that makes a big deal with? People that are supposedly close to God. We are the ones that argue about stupid traditions, right? I don't hear anybody that doesn't attend church that's walking in like, well, they didn't have Sunday school before the service. I'm leaving. <laughs> it's church people. We, we argue about those things. So I want us to spend less of the time focusing on, on, on this, this one thing. The big picture of what was going on here was that there was a group of people wanting to become part of a community. They wanted to belong. They wanted to be counted as part of the family of God. But some of the group that was already on the inside wanted them to behave a certain way first. This mindset is something that has been present in many churches. For a long time, the idea was this. Like, if you want to come to church, if you want to be part of this, like, select group, that the first thing you need to do is behave. All right? You need to get your act together, clean yourself up, stop saying certain words, doing certain things, get your life straightened out, get married to the person that you're living with, uh, don't spend your Saturday night at the bar, realize, you know, when your behavior needs to be adjusted first. Like, but understand this, when we do that, when we expect that people need to behave before they show up, we are making it difficult for people who are far from God to come closer to God. All right, And then kind of the thought was this, like, well, okay, after you start behaving, then we want you to come to church and we want you to become a Christian. 
okay? Then you can become a Christian. We want you to make the decision to give up everything in your life and live for Jesus and call yourself a Christian. And after you have done both of those things, after you've begun to behave and you've become a Christian, then you can feel like you belong. Then you can belong to this community and this family that we have here. Like this, this is what the approach was. This is what was happening in our passage today. This approach. This approach ha has been in many, many churches over the years. That this is the order you need to do it in. And this went without saying in a lot of churches. Because if you walked into church and you didn't know this order and you didn't do these things, you felt it. You walked in wearing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, and you did not, you felt like, I don't belong here. And when a church or a group have this attitude, like you, yes, I love that. Uh-oh. <laughs> Kids are the best. I love it. <laughs> When we do this, when we do this order, we are doing the exact opposite of what James said. When we do this, you are making it extremely difficult for those who are wanting to turn to God. Because we would actually say that God is the one that changes us, right? Like This is what we say we believe, that the Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us to that change. And through the power of the Spirit, we can actually begin to live our life free from the bondage of sin and from our human nature. So based on what we say we believe, the order should actually be belong. That should be the first one. All right? And, and during or after this belonging, at some point, the hope is that you make a decision to actually want to become a follower of Jesus. And it's easier to make that decision because now you are in a community with others alongside of you instead of them all wanting uh, all of them waiting on the other side of the fence, like judging you until you make that decision. Now you have people that are willing to walk alongside you. You feel like you belong, you feel like you're part of this, and you're like, you know what, maybe I want to make this decision. Maybe I want to become a Christian. Instead of looking at a group that is standing there judging you, saying, I don't know if I want to be part of that group. And then, the behavior comes. And after you're in community, and after you've made this decision, then the Holy Spirit can begin to work on your life. It's kind of the, the classic, like, God told us to go fishing. All right? His job is to clean the fish. We just catch the fish. But how many times do we get so caught up in trying to clean the fish? You're not living the right way. You need to figure this out. All right, and, and understand, there's part of, a, of the community, part of that job, where we can come alongside those who are growing and help them. And they can help us, all right, in living this life and potentially adjusting certain things in our life. But that can only truly happen when you have relationship with people. When you don't have relationship with somebody, they don't want to hear it. So when we do the other order, behave first, we are completely removing the community aspect of speaking into someone's life. Because we don't have relationship with them. You can't do this out of order. You can't help someone change behavior without them belonging to your community. This is the order that we're called to. All right? Why don't you guys stand with me as we close?
One of the things I hear a lot uh, nowadays, there's this big argument of like, you know, where's church going and is it healthy, is it not? And, you know, kind of this idea of like people just come and they sit and they consume and they aren't part of anything. And I hear pastors talk about, well, we're missing on the community and everything's so individualistic all the time. And then the reality is, is this, though, then, then the pastors get up and everything that they say that we should do, it's all about you, the individual. How did you encounter God today? What do you need to do this week? What about your decisions and your life? All right, and, and I think it's important that we actually, there's times where like, it, it's good for each one of us to walk out of here and know that, hey, you have a responsibility, you have a task, you have a job, you have something to do. But the reality is, is that should be part of something greater. And I've been trying to move a lot of our application away from just this individualistic, like what does this mean to you today? And say instead, like, this is a community thing. What does this mean to us as a church? What is, yes, what is your role? But what is your role inside of this community? So I think the two things, and you can think about this as you as an individual, but don't stop there. Think about this as, as a community. If this isn't your church community, that's fine. Think about it in regards to your church community. If you don't have one, then just kind of think about this. Like, what, what would this look like on a bigger, on a bigger scale? Is there a place where, where we have allowed tradition to take the place of the mission? Is there a place where, where things are difficult for people because we're hanging on to tradition? Is there something in your life that you found yourself recently when you're at church saying, ah, man, I just can't, I just can't find myself to like the way we do that? Okay, is that valid? Like, spend some time talking with God. Is that you hanging on to tradition? If it's valid, then please come and talk to me about it. Let's talk about this. And then moving beyond just the tradition focus, like what, what does that order look like for you? What do you expect from other people who walk into the community? Do you expect them to first behave and become something before you extend that, that family place of belonging? Or when people walk through the doors, it doesn't matter what you already know about them, how you've interacted with them in the community or, or what you think their favorite thing to do on the weekend is. Do they walk through the doors and you just say, hey, you belong here. You belong. I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad you're here. These things matter. This is what made the difference between why the early church was just so contagious and explosive and why so many churches today are just bleeding and struggling to, to keep the people they even have, let alone have new people walk through the doors feeling like, I want to be part of that. God, I pray right now, Lord, that every single one of us in this room Lord, that we would be able to, to have the right focus as we approach things like this. To be able to, to be part of community and, and, and to make that community as accessible as we can. 
God, as we begin to uh, push forward trying to reach our community better and reach all of our community, Lord, not just the community uh, that already would feel welcomed here, uh, not just the community that looks like us and talks like us, but God, as we try and reach all of our community, Lord, and as, as certain things maybe become less comfortable for us, that we would be reminded of this. God, that you would give us a heart for those that aren't part of this community already. God, and that, that we would have a heart for the people that are here. God, that we would be able to come alongside each other, build each other up, encourage each other, call things out when that is needed, that we would have that type of relationship. God, I thank you for this just body of believers, this group, this family, this community. Lord, I, I thank you for this. God, let us just honor you and just pursue you with everything that we have. Let us not be distracted. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.